It's me, Mario, telling you that this show has some bad language. Please listen responsibly. Freeman, Dapper Dan Enthusiasts, Beer Me Your Ears, I'm Dave Michaels. I'm Brian Betts. And this is Beer Me A Movie. It's the podcast where me and Brian take turns every week beering each other a movie as a complete surprise, and the last week of every month, the audience gets to beer us a movie, which we can't say no to. Exactly. I don't know what we're talking about next week. Definitely don't know what we're talking about at the end of the month when the listeners choose for us. Uh, spoiler alert. It's my pick next week, and I don't know what we're talking about next week yet, so as we work our way through this movie, I may figure it out. We're going to find out the hard way. Just going to whittle it down until you get to the the final answer. That's all I can do. (laughs) But Brian, this was our first audience pick. Sure was. Uh, Our good friend and listener, Michael Karlstrom, came in with a suggestion of, Oh, brother, where art thou? Directed by the Coen brothers, the year 2000, which blows my mind that this came out 22 years ago. Yeah, I'm going through that weird phase right now where you hear like the year 2000. It's like, I remember where I was. I'm like talking about Y2K and bullshit like that. Yeah. And now it's like, no, I was like a lifetime ago. Like my my past can drink to (laughs) 2000. And that's not right. past can drink. I've never heard it put that way, but yeah. And it makes me want to. Yeah, very much so, and I am. I did too big of a pour this week. Uh, I've been drinking too much beer lately, so I only have a side beer, but my main consumption is now in the form of Old Forester bourbon for this so one, you, especially. You're, you're beering yourself a bourbon. I came downstairs, and I got like the projector down here, and I was watching movies last night on it, so I had the lights nice and dimmed. I hadn't turned them back up yet, and I did a pour. And then right before we started recording and I actually saw what I poured, <laughs> the, like it, it was one of those like Will Arnett, I've made a horrible mistake. I made a terrible yeah. mistake. I, oh, God. Once you see it in the light, you realize what you've done. It's terrible. Right. It was like a bad night in college rolling over the next morning. Yeah. I swear to God, last night at <laughs> four in the morning, this was fine. But now. Not fine. Yikes. This is not fine. And you're going to have the same feeling tomorrow morning when you wake up. Yeah. Good chance of that. Have you ever seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I absolutely have, but I, I did not remember a lot of it. Why don't you hit me with those thoughts? I think this movie is delightful. It really is. I think that's the best word to describe it. It is just delightful. It just like chugs along. It's got a nice clip to it. I really love this movie, man. This might be my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, th- it's one of the few I've seen, so it's in the running. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I don't have a, a lot of history with the Coen brothers outside of this Big Lebowski and like Burn After Reading. Burn After Reading is delightful too, though. They're all delightful. That movie's like the Seinfeld of movies, just about nothing. And I love it. <laughs> That's kind of how this feels, but it's this this is like nothing meets real big fish in the American South, but also, you know, the Odyssey, which is very heavy handedly in here. Yeah, well, it says it's based on it, so I would hope it is. Yeah. It'd be weird if they said, like, oh, it's based on the Odyssey. That has literally nothing to do with it. Well, despite the Coen brothers never having read the Odyssey, they do a pretty we, good job. Yeah, we'll get there. We will absolutely <laughs> get there. Do you want to just get right into this thing? 
Yeah, let's get right into it. As always, we're going to break this thing down on a scale of 100 points. And if we match the either critical or audience Rotten Tomato score, we, of course, have to pound our drink at the end of this episode. Oh, God, so, that makes me so nervous now. We should come up with a name for this uh, scale at some point. We don't really need to rush to it. No, but I think we'll have that moment of inspiration at some point and be like, oh, we'll call it, you know, the beer score or something. Whatever. It'll, it is. it'll like, be better than that. I though. expect like a John Belushi back of the church Blues Brothers moment of just God speaking to me saying, that's your score, bitch, because God's yeah. going to call me a bitch. Let's face it. <laughs> Well, if you weren't being such a bitch, you wouldn't have to. <laughs> That's fair. Just come up with a score. You're like just talking to God like he's fucking squeak Scolari basketball. <laughs> Guys rip on me 13 or 14 more times. <laughs> I'm out of here. Smite you. <laughs> so we start off with story and motivation, which of course we read directly from Wikipedia. Three convicts Pete, played by John fucking Torturo, and Delmar, played by Tim fucking Blake fucking Nelson. Led by Ulysses Everett McGill, played by George fucking Clooney. All three deserved. Escape from a chain gang and set out to retrieve a treasure Everett said was buried before the area is flooded to make a lake. It's sort of MacGuffined? Sort of? Sort of. They're like, hey, we gotta go get this treasure because we got a timeline here. Right. And also, the guards watching them as they escape are the worst guards, I'd have to say. <laughs> I love this escape so much because they are not being. What's the word I'm looking for? Subtle? No. No, they're not being subtle at all. It's wild because, like, you see this field out there. They pop up out of the field. Like, they run maybe 15 feet, then they fall over again. It's like, don't even pop up, guys. You've gotten this far. Stay down. Stop popping up. And definitely don't run like your Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> with your arms flailing so much. Good point. The three of them get a lift from a blind man driving a hand car on a railway. And he tells them they will find a fortune but not the one they seek. Ooh, ominous. The trio make their way to the house of Wash. His full name is insane because it's Washington Bartholomew Hogswallop, <laughs> but they just call him Wash. Sure. I mean, you might as well shorten it. And it's Pete's cousin, and they sleep in the barn, but Wash reports them to Sheriff Cooley, played by Daniel Von Bargen. Daniel Von fucking Bargain. He's so good in this. He's so good in this, and all so of his good acting is done in the reflection of his glasses. Yeah, and has he ever played a good guy? Like, ever? I Not that I can recall. Okay. He's very good at playing this role. Absolutely. And he, along with his men, torched the barn that the trio was sleeping in. But Wash's son helps them escape. Yeah, this kid's awesome. He's got, like, the big blocks on his feet so he can steal the car. Yeah, he's sitting on, like, a, a stack of phone books. And then, of course, thing. the trio steals the car from the kid, and the kid's just like, fuck you guys. And Pete's like, go home to your dad, you crazy nephew of mine. What's <laughs> the South in the whatever year? <laughs> whatever. This mid-depression times. They pick up Tommy Johnson, played by Chris fucking Thomas King, a young black man who claims he sold his soul to the devil in exchange for the ability to play guitar, which is the same as a legend told about blues musician Robert Johnson, who sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads in Mississippi. Allegedly. Allegedly. Look, I wasn't there. I can't say for sure. But sounds like this guy might have sold his soul to the devil so he could play a guitar real good. It might be the case. I mean, he didn't get a fiddle or anything like that. And certainly not a golden guitar. Right. He got the shit end of this deal, I think. But <laughs> he's, he might not at the end. I'm not quite sure. We'll get there. 
In need of money, the four stop at a radio broadcast tower where they record a song as the Soggy Bottom Boys. And this song kicks ass? Like all the asses? So much ass. This song, and this is something we will definitely get to later, more successful than this movie. Very, very good chance of that. That night, the trio part ways with Tommy after their car is discovered by the police. And that is underselling it, Wikipedia. Wikipedia is very good at underselling it. Because the police find them, torch another barn, and Tommy's like, oh, cops, I'm getting out of here. I like how they just start torching barns all willy-nilly. Like, they, you have the trios, like, looking over a hill at the barn. They're just like, oh, damn it, they're going to torch this innocent-looking barn. They don't even know no one's in there. <laughs> I like that, like, a minute before they, the cops show up, they're just like, man, I don't want to sleep in the barn tonight. We should just sleep out here in the stars. It's pretty nice out. How about that? Oh, the police are over there. (laughs) Unbeknownst to all of them, the recording becomes a major hit. It is unbeknownst to them. They have no idea that their song is a hit. And Stephen fucking Root as the sound engineer, I guess. And he's got like the crazy eyes looking all over the place. And he's just Stephen Rooting all over the screen. Stephen Root plays crazy eyes better than anybody else in Hollywood. And I'll stand by that. It's amazing how he does it. I don't know where he's looking, ever. I don't know if he does either, but... That's fair. He knows how to let his eyes go. He's selling it. There's a lot of eye gags in this movie. (laughs) There are. It's a weirdly eye-gag-heavy movie. For whatever reason. One of the reasons I understand. The rest of them, not quite sure. For Odyssey reasons, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Near a river, the group hears singing. They see three women washing clothes and singing. Hence the aforementioned singing. <laughs> they see three women washing clothes and being redundant. The women drug them with corn whiskey, and they lose consciousness. The way this is worded is fun. <laughs> is it? I'm having a nightmare situation listening to you right now. <laughs> they drug them with corn whiskey. That's not how that works. That's not. I don't think you would call that drugging them. And I don't think they all got drugged. Like, we only see George Clooney and his lady, like, Forcing the big jug into his mouth, and the other two just are horned up beyond belief. Just so incredibly horned up. Which is crazy for them to be horned up, especially now that they just got saved, because they They got baptized earlier by another random singing group of people in white in the woods. So many singing white-clothed people in woods. You know, if it worked out the first time, why not? Like, I'm half expecting, like, Elrond to pop out and be like, (laughs) we're heading to the west. It's not going to work unless he sings it, though. That's true. Well, we don't want him to sing it. We don't, we don't want <laughs> him to sing it like bullshit Elvish or whatever. <laughs> Upon waking, Delmar finds Pete's clothes lying next to him, empty, except for a toad. Delmar is convinced that the women were sirens and transformed Pete into the toad. And this is just so strange. It is super strange because George Clooney's character, Ulysses, the aptly named Ulysses, doesn't believe it at all, but then he, he like starts to believe it. He does sort of start to believe it, but you have him wake up. You got the crazy shot of them lying down, the crotch shot that's there, their feet <laughs> coming like towards the foreground. Uh, it goes over to Delmar, same exact shot. It goes over to Pete, and his clothes are laid out just perfectly. Like, what actually happened to Pete? That's, I think Pete probably removed the clothes of his own free will. Probably, but then he laid them down in this strange way. <laughs> I don't know what, what Pete's thing is, but maybe it's just like making his friends think he's still hanging out. Okay. Whatever works for you, Pete. <laughs> but yeah, the frog is like inside his shirt. So Delmar thinks his heart is still there beating. 
And then the frog jumps out, or the toad, sorry. Apologies to all toads for Brian getting all amphibian racist or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely an amphibiast. And then, of course, he jumps into the river, grabs the toad. And the whole time, Ulysses is like, I don't think that's Pete. But the longer it goes on, he stops saying that's not Pete. He does, uh, eventually. They put him in a shoebox, that's why. And they kind of <laughs> just take it with him to go. Later, one-eyed Bible salesman Big Dan, played by John fucking Goodman, invites them for a picnic lunch and then mugs them and kills the toad. Now, this should be a red flag to anybody, is if you are at a restaurant having lunch and you see a man having lunch and then he invites you on a picnic directly after that to go have lunch, (laughs) you're probably getting mugged or killed or raped or something. I feel like a man of John Goodman's size in the year 2000, I would not be surprised if he was like, I just ate lunch, but you know what I could go for? Lunch. That's fair. And he like brings him out to this nice serene location. It is really nice. And he's just sweating like nothing I've ever seen put to fill. Oh, he's sweating like crazy. The man is a waterfall. But he's a Bible salesman. That's a trustworthy job. It is, but I like how he like grabs the tree branch as George Clooney's like eating the corn and he bashes Delmar's face with it. And George Clooney <laughs> doesn't even hesitate. He's like, what you doing there? Just still eating <laughs> the corn, like I'm not sure I understand your message. <laughs> oh God, they're so good. Uh, also, we haven't even talked about Dapper Dan yet. We haven't because they're just <laughs> neglecting to say it. I guarantee, like throwing like in his bullshit at the end of this thing. But uh, George Clooney is obsessed with hair product. There, we did absolutely it. obsessed. He will not use fop. He's a Dapper Dan man, and it's also how the police keep tracking them down because of the smell of his Dapper Dan yep. <laughs> and their dogs. On their way to Everett's hometown, Everett and Delmar see Pete working on a chain gang. So he's, he's alive. He's not a toad. Yay! Upon arriving, Everett confronts his wife, Penny, played by Holly Hunter. Holly fucking Hunter. Good, yeah, good correction. She's not in here a lot, but what she is in here for, she's good at. She absolutely is. She changed her last name and told his daughters he was dead. He got hit by a train. He got hit by a train. And he's like, I, clearly, I did not get hit by a train. I'm right here. But I love it. She's like, a lot of respectful men get hit by trains. It's like, what does this even mean? <laughs> Getting hit by a train is more respectful than what actually happened to him. Yep. What a great sales job, though, from her. Oh, absolutely. She should be selling Bibles. Absolutely. He gets into a fight with Vernon, played by Ray McKinnon. Ray fucking McKinnon. Everybody gets a fucking. I don't care. Anymore. Everybody gets. I love how they get in the fight and he like. Puts He's the dukes the, up. Oh, yeah. Oh, so the old time boxer. classic fisticuffs. Oh, I love it so much. Vernon is, of course, Penny's new suitor. Um, who, they're getting married tomorrow. Yeah, that's convenient. Later that night, they sneak into Pete's holding cell and free him. And as it turns out, the women had dragged Pete away and turned him into the authorities. But not the other two. I think uh, they woke up before the women could come back and get the other two. Fair enough. Under torture... Pete gave away the treasure's location to the police. Everett then confesses that there is no treasure. He made it all up to convince the guys he was chained with to escape with him in order to stop his wife from getting remarried. I like how they take it fairly well, even though they don't, but they sort of do. (laughs) I mean, Pete is enraged at Everett because he had two weeks left on his original sentence and now will likely face another 50 additional years for the escape. Yeah, that's on him. That's, I mean... Have a little backbone if you only got two weeks left, right? Yeah. Well, at the same time, they're they're being promised a third of a cut of over a million dollars. And it'll be there in two weeks, Pete. It won't, though, because it's getting flooded. Go swim. (laughs) 
Everybody knows that during the Great Depression, wet money was worth no money. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. I, I <laughs> forgot all about wet money. Well, it was a weird time in our nation's history. <laughs> wet money was not accepted anywhere. That's why the Depression happened is because uh, a sprinkler went off at the bank, the, the one, yeah. and it made all the money wet. And they're like, ah, damn it. Actually, people often say the hardest part about the Great Depression was uh, you couldn't cry. You couldn't let your emotions out because you'd risk getting what little money you did have wet, and then it'd be useless. So as depressing as it was, not a lot of tears. You know, I don't know if the whole tragedy plus time is comedy here. <laughs> <laughs> like that formula? I don't know if it, like how it works when it comes to something like the Great Depression. Uh, are we, was it not tragic enough, or has it just not been enough time? I would have to go with the time part. <laughs> the tragic part. A way to play it safe. <laughs> oh, it just wasn't that tragic. It just wasn't that tragic. If they just stopped crying on their monies, it's a lot like telling like people of Ireland during the potato famine, why didn't you just eat something else? <laughs> Grow a different crop, bro. <laughs> like raise some livestock. Yeah, what are they gonna eat? I don't fucking know. But not potatoes, because you can't eat those either. I understand how it worked. I'm not being ignorant, people. Jesus. Calm yeah, down. Come on. It was a poor example. It was an example of my logic, basically. <laughs> the most depressing thing about the Great Depression was you couldn't be depressed because then you'd cry on your money, you'd be even more depressed. Right. And if they didn't call it the Great Depression, then it wouldn't be all that bad, really. Right. It like was when the you put that times. nomenclature on it, yeah, it's going to be pretty fucking bad. I, I would have a bad time there. Oh, they call it the Great Depression, but nobody was crying, so. Ten years before, Roaring Twenties. Was it depressing? No, it was roaring. Everybody was pretending to be lions and tigers. <laughs> exactly. I know why all these times got their names. I have to imagine they were named in the time, too. Like, it oh, wasn't absolutely. like yeah. revisionist history or anything like that. Here we are in the Roaring Twenties now. <laughs> it is 1920. Let's have a meeting and figure out what we're going to call this decade. Yeah, let's... <laughs> Well, the guy that, that coined the phrase the Great Depression was kind of an asshole, huh? He was a complete asshole. You know what? We had a lot of fun in the Roaring Twenties, but I'm declaring this the Great Depression. The people in the year 2000 are still having their meeting because they're like, we're going to call it the 2000s. They're like, no, we're going to call it the aughts. It's like, make up your goddamn minds. Yeah. Well, I, I side on the ought people. I think they ought to be the, the correct ones because- They ought to the, be. Look yeah. at you. The 2000s is too generic a term. It's like saying the 1900s. That's what they called it. Not in the 1990s. Oh, that was like the century. As yeah. one of, did they call it the aughts back then also? They kind of usually skip to like the 1910s, and even that doesn't have a flow to it at all. It doesn't, come up because with a it's mostly teens. People really need to take this seriously, what they, they call their decades. Yeah. That's why, you know what? That's why they had things like the roaring 20s, so you could delineate it from all the other 20s. The swinging 60s? Yeah. And others. <laughs> and others. <laughs> Those nifty 90s. That's, that's what they, they call them. Might have called them, yeah. So the trio stumble upon a rally of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> the Ku Klux Klan. It's good that I can't say that in the first go, I think. That is probably the right way to approach that. And I can't believe I'm going to say this because you have all the people, the, the Ku Kluxers out there with their big hoods and walking around. There's a lot of pageantry going on. There is. Uh, they are extremely organized. They are. They're like goddamn Lord of the Dance here as they're in the woods about to lynch a black man. And I yeah. think my favorite part about this was the horse jacket on the horses <laughs> that were there. Yes. And it's because like 
whenever you look at like a superhero villain or something like that and they have like branded material like you know they had to go to like an embroidery person like joker putting joker shit all over jokers yeah minions and whatnot uh the horse jacket just has kkk across the the hindquarters of this horse it's like <laughs> who knitted that onto it who like crocheted or embroidered that onto the back of this horse jacket why'd they have to put that there based on the amount of people that are at this meeting i would say there's probably multiple people in town that would do that for you probably but also they call it like a secret society later on it's like this is not secret when you slap the three letters onto no, it, onto no, the horse you are advertising on your steed you are that's what the worst place to advertise on your after steed. work activities are on your pre-glue <laughs> pre-glue i like that from now on horses are pre-glue what i like about this scene is they had to hire a ton of extras <laughs> they did <laughs> and imagine just you know you get a gig as an extra you're like all right cool i'm gonna be in a movie and you show up on the day and you're like oh you want me to wear what now <laughs> why do you think they would care though i mean their faces are covered well fun fact a lot of these ku klux klan members are african-americans <laughs> Way to stick it to the man. Yeah. Uh, there's actually uh, one of the Cohen brothers, who knows which one, actually is quoted as saying, yeah, I overheard one of our, one of our black extras one day going, this is crazy. <laughs> That's wonderful. I've worked with a bunch of extras. They'll do anything. They're for a paycheck, damn it. They are. So the KKK are planning to hang Tommy. That's right. Tommy's back. So the trio disguise themselves as Klansmen. And move to rescue Tommy. And they're doing this so covertly that they're part of, like, the color guard. Yep. As they're walking Tommy to get hanged. And they don't stop talking to him the whole time. Right? They're, like, not subtly whispering to Tommy. They're like, hey, Tommy, we're going we're gonna to save you. While also not being in perfect uh, step with the rest of these very choreographed KKK members. They're treating Tommy like they're the goddamn who. Like he's blind, deaf, and dumb. Tommy, can you hear me? <laughs> Woo, Tommy. Big Dan just happens to be a clan member. <laughs> Big surprise. Right. And he reveals the trio's identities. Chaos ensues, and the Grand Wizard reveals himself as Homer Stokes, played by Wayne fucking Duvall, a candidate in the upcoming gubernatorial election. He's running against Pappy O'Daniel. He is. Who, who's played by uh, Charles fucking Durning. And I just love the word gubernatorial. I was just about to say that, man. Like, whenever you're talking about politics or any elections or something like that, they're like, oh, the Senate race is, is really heating up between the good man and the bad man. And uh, the House, <laughs> the Congresses, they're getting together and they're doing uh, and then gubernatorial. <laughs> Let's talk about the goobers now. It sounds like something like Eminem Mars would come up with. It's like a, a, a snack food every four years or whatever. Right? It's like, you have to elect the new gubernatorial <laughs> flavor. Hey, that's a left gubernatorial. Oh, it's a right gubernatorial. Oh. <laughs> I just never understood how they, they got from governor to gubernator. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I love that they did it, but I still don't know how. It's like the greatest leap that no one ever talks about. <laughs> I can't, can't wait to go elect a new gubernator. <laughs> There's a great, great, great comedy bit from Gary Goldman about the abbreviations of states. Okay. And how they like came up with them. And it's so fucking funny. I, he did it on some late night show. And it's one of like my, my favorite written jokes of all time. And I feel like the word gubernatorial fit right into it. 
uh, go look at for Gary Goldman and the abbreviations of the states. It's so good. It really ramps up when you get into the M's. <laughs> it sure does. So the trio rush Tommy away and cut the supports of a large burning cross, incinerating Big Dan. Good! That is, that is good language in that Wikipedia article, incinerating. It's because they take, like, the Confederate flag and they, like, javelin that bitch through the sky. And Homer Stokes, like, don't let it touch the ground! So Big Dan catches it and gives, like, a look to the camera, like, yeah, I did that. And then he gets crossed to death. Yeah, it looks like it's going to hit him in his remaining eye, but he catches it with his open hands just before it takes out his, his good eye. Which is always cool whenever that happens in a movie, no matter what. Absolutely. It's always cool. Even when it's a Ku Klux Klan member rescuing a Confederate <laughs> flag, it's always cool. <laughs> uh, so Everett convinces Pete, Delmar, and Tommy to help him win his wife back. They sneak into a Stokes campaign gala dinner that Penny is attending, disguised as musicians. How about that? The group begins a performance of their radio hit, and the crowd recognizes the song and goes wild. They lose their goddamn minds. And they had no idea that this was going to happen. They're just like, hey, we know that one song. Let's sing it. And then they just go crazy. But then they lean into it and they start doing all the silly dancing. And I oh, love it silly so much. Is great. And I especially love when when George Clooney pulls down on the fake beard. It's, oh, it's such a good touch. They have like this whole identity that's inarguably better than anything Kiss ever came up with. All right. <laughs> That's what I understand. It's like a hot take against Kiss. I don't get it. You know, makeup is fun. <laughs> yes, it is. But when you look at bands that do like crazy masks of makeup, it's like Guar, badass, Slipknot, Absolutely. badass, Kiss. <laughs> One of you is a cat. I will fuck you in the skull. <laughs> I want to rock and roll all night and keep my dick out of your skull. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a line about painting my face like a cat. <laughs> there is a cat. And paint my face like a cat. <laughs> that does have a, a better ring to it. Yeah, uh, I'll give you su that. Super metal. I don't understand Kiss. I don't understand Kiss. I don't understand Kiss. And I don't know if we ever will. I don't know if they're meant to be understood. That's the whole thing right there. Gene Simmons just like, I don't want people to know me, so I'm going to put on this mask. No, not a metaphorical one. An actual mask of clown makeup. And then stick my tongue out. And then I'm going to form my own posse of clowns. And then, uh... <laughs> and it's going to be insane, you it's, guys. It's going to be insane. We're going to call it Kiss. What? What? You know, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> Homer recognizes these soggy bottom boys as the group who humiliated his mob. When he demands the group be arrested and reveals his white supremacist views, the crowd runs him out of town on a rail. Was that like a thing? I don't know. I think it's always been a metaphor, but they were they like, you know what? Let's actually it. do it. Let's get a rail in here and run him out of town. They bring just a giant ass log in there and it takes forever to get in and they put him on it and then they literally just run him out of there. Walk him out. Yeah. And I don't really know what that does. Like, it's embarrassing. Yeah, I'll give you that, but... <laughs> It's one thing to be asked to leave politely. It's another thing to be put on a log and run out of the room. Right. So Papio Daniel, the incumbent candidate, seizes the opportunity, endorses the Soggy Bottom Boys, and grants them full pardons. I'd say they deserve it. They brought hope and joy to uh, Mississippians. <laughs> they brought music Frankly, to a, Mississippi a needs it. <laughs> if anybody does. 
Penny agrees to marry Everett with the conditions that he find her original ring. That seems like a reasonable condition. It feels like one. So the next morning, the group sets out to retrieve the ring, which is at a cabin in the valley, which Everett had earlier claimed was the location of his treasure. The police, having learned of the plans from Pete, are already there and they arrest the group. Oh, yeah, let's call it arresting the group. When you have three people digging graves, having <laughs> coffins ready to go, and having the nooses already over the tree bridge. Yeah, let's call that arresting. Yeah, let's, let's do that. So dismissing their claims of having received pardons, Sheriff Cooley orders them hanged. He doesn't even dismiss it. Like, Everett <laughs> says, they put it out over the radio, and he's like, we ain't got no radio. It's oh, like, that's not a legal defense no there. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. As Everett prays to God, the valley is flooded, and they are saved. It's not just flooded. Like, a giant tidal wave knocks the shit out of this cabin. It knocks the shit out of everybody involved. Everyone's floating around. Dapper Dan is everywhere oh, at this Dan point. Cans There's so many the Dapper Dan cans. There's a dog underwater. <laughs> it's insanity. It's absolute pandemonium. And I love how Everett's just like, yeah, there's a scientific explanation for all this, because he has the gift of gab. Right. He's a very talky boy. And then Tommy finds the ring in a desk that floats by, and they return to town. However, when Everett presents the ring to Penny, it turns out it was her aunt's ring, and she declares that she will not marry him with that ring, but only her wedding ring, which is still lost. Which should be the red flag to get you out of it. But also, he's got eight kids with this lady. He's not getting out of anything. <laughs> not a chance. And he wants back in. He does want back in. He wants a second chance. And he got arrested for practicing law without a license. So yeah. he's a possible do-gooder? I, I don't know. That was a, an interesting turn for that character, too. He's like, oh, no, I didn't really steal a whole bunch of money. I was just practicing law illegally. It's literally the only character arc in this movie. <laughs> I was just doing the plot of my cousin Vinny. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> But that right there is a brother or aren't that from the year 2000. Daddy Ought, the year. Daddy Ought. Directed by the Code Brothers. Uh, this movie fucks, and it this fucks movie, hard. Yeah, it absolutely does. This is an, a treat through and through. It is, and it moves so well. It's shot so beautifully, and it makes perfect sense why. Roger fucking Deacons. Oh, yeah. I adore this movie. It is such a great adaptation and a modern adaptation of Homer's The Odyssey. Modern-ish. I mean, definitely more modern. Yeah, there, there's... Uh, yeah, I'll give you that. Uh, I'm looking at an eight. I think eight is exactly right. Out of ten. I, I, I feel like we should say, we're putting it on the scoreboard or whatever. <laughs> we did just take time to go through the plot to understand the film. And Correct. We're back. We're back to scoring. We're, we're back to scoring. The story and motivation, an eight out of ten. So let's talk about casting. It's ridiculously good. It's, it's so on the money for each of these characters. I think Tim Blake Nelson is the most perfect in this movie. He is, I think, the undersung hero of this, of this film. He gets MVP. If we had to give an MVP, he's getting it. I also feel like he had the least successful career after this of everybody in the movie. Well, yeah. But Which still. is unfortunate, because he's great. He is coming back for Captain America 4. Oh, goody. So, can't wait for that. Can't wait. I want to go with a, another 8. I think Holly Hunter's a bit of a weak part of this movie. She's not in a lot of it. They don't really give her a whole lot to do. They give her, like, weird little quirks more than yeah. anything. Yeah. Uh, they give a lot of these cameo characters just quirks. 
weird not so much for the sake of, a character i think it's for the sake of enjoyment though not not just to make them weird i think it is to make them weird because this movie is episodic oh big time so you kind of have to get in get out very quickly but i think they could have done a little bit more and i feel like when i say episodic like we have the whole big dan thing where he throws the toad against the tree after he mugs them and then he right. does come back as the kkk member it's like that's not an arc in my mind that's no it's it's the same same with tommy tommy shows up says i sold my soul to the devil they play some music he leaves he comes back later in the movie to be rescued and it's a lot of these extra characters don't have much going on outside of however they're serving the main trio's arc. Right, but even the main trio doesn't really have a redeeming arc. They have they get pardoned because of music. They pretty much producers their way out of it. Yeah. But as far as casting goes, that's true. <laughs> I it's I think terrific. I think the casting is is spot on for all these characters. I do think that the female roles were underplayed in every aspect of this movie. Eight, again. Hitting a lot of eights. Next up, we have the protagonist. It is your classic criminal that you want to see win. Yes. So basically, Ocean's Eleven again. (laughs) A lot of Clooney (laughs) happening in these early episodes. I really like it. There's not a whole lot for Pete. There's not a whole lot for Delmar in terms of their character. They're just kind of buddying up to Everett at that point and helping right. him with his, uh, whatever he has to do, I'm going to go with a seven. I can't argue that. I think I think you're right. Seven going seems... right, the, right from the gut, man. If you have something to argue, you want to dive in, throw something out first, by all means. No, I know. I, I like what you said, though. I mean, it's right it's... from my bourbon-filled gut. Really, it's this is Clooney's movie. I mean, yeah, seven. Seven is exactly right. So let's talk about the antagonist. I guess the main one is probably Sheriff Cooley. It is. But almost everybody they meet up with in this yeah. movie is, is somewhat it's of like an antagonist. It's like a roadblock. Yeah. It's a series of antagonists with, like, I guess kind of a big bad at the end, but he's also, like, he's the guy who's been chasing them the whole movie. Yeah, but it only pops up, like, twice before. Right. So it's not terribly well established. He's more of a repeated threat than a constant threat. Right. Um, ah, I kind of want to go five. I Five was exactly where my head it was It doesn't at. seem... It's terribly feels... strong, but it's yeah. not uh, it, it not being terribly strong doesn't hold the movie back. No, but it also isn't terribly strong. But it, it is the thing is, it's it's an epic. So it's different stories along the way. It's not right. supposed to be one continuous. I, I mean, obviously, in the Odyssey, it's the gods. It is. But if that's where you're going to put it. We'll get there when we talk about screenplay more than anything, because you have to put it together yeah. at a point. You're right. Okay, so let's stick with five for antagonists, and let's talk about screenplay. Like you were just saying, it is episodic. You need to have these quick little episodes. That's the way to put that. that hey, hey, hey. What, do you, what do you think? Episodic for episodes? You got to get in and you got to get out. Right. You got to tell the quick story within the story. It has to have a three-act structure every few minutes for the most part. Yeah. But also having an overarching three-act structure, which we do get. Yeah. It's a really well-written screenplay. There's a lot of great lines in this where <laughs> even like the first barn burning where they're hiding, he's like, oh, we're in a tight spot. And he and just he keeps just repeating. Keeps <laughs> My favorite part about this movie is the, the continued repeated quips, because I still think that repeating something enough times, eventually it becomes funny. It does. And even at the end where they establish Holly Hunter counting the three. 
Yeah. He's like, a thing. And he goes, God damn, she counted to three. Oh, she counted God, three. she counted to three. Counted three. Oh, we're in a tight spot. My favorite one of the tight spots is when they cut away and he's not even on screen and you hear him in the background go, we're in a tight spot. It's really it's good. so good. I love the way this is written. Nine. Nine. Which brings us to style and tone. Roger fucking Deacons. Roger fucking Deacons. One of the greatest cinematographers of all time for a reason. I like how you have this sepia tone that kind of leaks throughout oh, the movie, yeah. and then it kind of opens up into a bit more color as it goes along. Yeah, it, oh, it opens man. up in that almost full-on black and white, and it slowly leaks in that saturation until you're mid-moving. You don't even realize that the colors fully come back, and then at the end, it slowly fades out again, and it's just, it's so well done. It is, and he also has a great way of working with the Coen brothers themselves directing because there are these little slow camera movements that are there to show off a pretty picture, but at the same time, move the film along cinematically right? and establish these visual themes throughout the movie that just keep carrying it through. Yeah. And the, not to mention, the digital effects in this movie are so well done that you don't even realize that there's digital effects happening. You have no clue. They're so flawlessly put together. The American Humane Association mistook a computer-generated cow in the movie for a real animal and demanded proof before they would allow them to use the, the no animals were harmed disclaimer. And then after they saw the demonstration by the company that did the graphics, they actually added in an extra disclaimer that says scenes which may appear to place an animal in jeopardy were simulated, which is a very rare warning at the time. It is, and this movie looks fucking gorgeous. It's so it well done. It is so well shot. Another eight. Another eight. There's movies that look a hell of a lot better. There's movies, uh, most movies look a hell of a lot most worse. Most movies look worse. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to our directors. An interesting fact about the Coen brothers is that up until 2000, They're not actually brothers. <laughs> Why was They're that not be? even related. <laughs> they don't even exist. Up until 2003, Joel Coen got sole credit for directing, and Ethan Coen always got sole credit for producing because of- guild rules that said they could sure, have multiple sure. directors unless they were, you know, an established duo. So it took them until 2004 before they were recognized as an established duo. But everybody knows that, yes, they worked together all the time on writing, editing, producing, and directing. They do it really, really well. I mean... Like, some of the all-time greats. Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely generational talents, At I would say, at this point. Where, if there's a Coen Brothers film... It's a landmark. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think it's their best directed movie by any means, but I don't. I don't have enough of a. Of a... I think Big Lebowski's better directed. I think No Country for Old Men is better directed. They tell the story really, really well, though. They do. They tell the story really well. It's. It looks amazing, and for having not even read the source material. Again, we'll get there, but yes, <laughs> for what they get out of it, uh, seven. That seems fair. It's my favorite of their movies, but... I was going to say, seven feels a little low, but it also an eight feels like too much. Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah, we're going we're gonna to settle with the seven. Well, there's a fun way of doing like a scale also where some people will say like, you have to go uh, one to ten, can't do seven, which I think is fascinating to do. Oh, that's interesting. As like a, a weird thought experiment, but uh, that being said, seven. Seven. <laughs> it is seven. So we're going to talk about music now. and. For this movie, uh, it's huge. It's enormous. It's one of the most well-known musical films of the past probably 20 years. 
Yeah. For one song. It's because that song landed so hard. So hard. And it, it's not just that. I feel like the way this movie uses music, you don't have a traditional score. All of the music in the movie is practical to what's happening in the scenes. Which is impressive. It's so well done. They always find a way to make it practical where you have a truck driving because it's part of a campaign with people singing on the back or right. a campaign stage where they pipe it in and other things are happening around it. It's it's always cleverly implemented in one way or another, even if it's just Tommy strumming on the guitar by the campfire. Uh, the film soundtrack became an unlikely blockbuster, even surpassing the success of the film. By early 2001, it had sold 5 million copies, spawned a documentary film, three follow-up albums, Oh Sister and Oh Sister 2. I don't know what the third one is. Two <laughs> <All right>. concert <laughs> tours and won Country Music Awards for Album of the Year and Single of the Year. It also won five Grammys, including Album of the Year, and hit number one in the Billboard album charts for the week of March 15, 2002, 63 weeks after its release. Wow. A year after the release of the film. Nine. <sighs> Saving that 10 for something real big, huh? I have to. I'm trying to restrain right. a little You're bit. You're right, though, because we are really mostly talking about one song. We are. But if we're looking at, like, the, the awards that you just listed there are insane. They're completely insane. They deserve a high score. But if yeah. you're looking at, like, greatest film scores of all time, like a Star Wars or something, would be an right. 11. Right. You're right. So it's trying to balance out. Nine's probably too high. Nine frankly. might be too high, actually. You're right. But when, when you start listing off album of the year and best compilation soundtrack album for visual media and down from the mountain concert tour and all that. Right. And we're not talking about an impact on the industry just for strictly a genre. We're talking about the music itself. The music is very good. And it's it fits the movie good. so appropriately. It works. Everything about it's terrific. Nine. So now we go to box office and oh boy, somehow this eked it out because <laughs> it had honestly, because the budget was so low on this movie, that's how it got away with this. But uh budget of this movie, $26 million. They Not did a big a, budget. A great job with only $26 million. Uh, opening weekend, it came out the same week as Castaway, Miss Congeniality, The Family Man, Dracula 2000, just a whole bunch of movies that performed way better than at opening weekend. Sure. And it was also going up against week two movies like What Women Want and The Emperor's New Groove. Which is great, by the way. Emperor's New Groove's great. Dude, Where's My Car was still in the top 10. Man. So, it, premiere weekend, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou finished 26th in the box office. Yikes! But over its full run worldwide, it grossed $71 million. Can you imagine a George Clooney movie opening weekend only doing $195,000? That's what it says <laughs> that's here. absolutely that insane to me. That is almost no money. That's, that's nothing. Yeah. Like, you're supposed to make your nut back opening weekend. Yeah, in, in modern film, yeah, that's the way it's wow. supposed to work. And, um, but luckily they did eventually make 71 million, almost 72 million, 71.8 million, 71.9, if you're into rounding numbers the correct way. Sure. Which actually means this thing made 276% of its original budget, which makes it a 10. All right. It managed to pull it off mostly due to its super low budget. We might need to figure out a different way to score these, because if we're going to ever talk about something like a paranormal activity, yeah, a 10 just doesn't do it justice. The same way that an O oh Brother or Art Thou would like yeah. here. So uh, well, let's put a pin in that and leave it at a 10 right now. Right now. But uh, we might have to address that down the road. Well, we did the 11 for E.T. And I mean, that was a big we did. one. So. We did. But E.T. and O oh Brother or Art Thou are not on the same scale. No, they're not. We'll get there. We'll, we'll figure it out. Maybe. Or we'll just 
keep saying, well, you got to figure that out for a few weeks and then maybe do something about it. Well, that's the beauty of the new show <laughs> where we can do whatever we want. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So the final category is impact on the industry. It's not terribly large. It's not huge. It was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography. It was the first feature film to be entirely color corrected by digital means, though. That's important. Especially because of how much we just raved about the colors and the color grading in this movie. The colors, Duke, the colors. I think that this thing kind of pushes it a little bit farther up. A little bit, but at the same time, even if this hadn't been done completely digitally, Chicken Run would have been the first, so... Uh, fair enough. Um, let's go with a four. I think that that seems about right. It's um, it didn't do a whole lot for the industry. No, people know it. People like it. It didn't really push anything along. But uh, first, but it's super film, enjoyable. Color corrected. That's got to mean something. It's, it gives you a little bit of a bump, and that is going to give Oh Brother Where Art Thou a total score of seventy five. Bullet dodged. I imagine that the critical score is much higher than that. Not much. The critical score for this one is a 79%. The audience score is 89%. Roger Ebert did see this movie, and he said, the opening titles inform us that the Coen brothers' Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? is based on Homer's The Odyssey. The Coens claim their Fargo is based on a true story, but later confided it wasn't. This time they confessed they haven't actually read The Odyssey. Still, they've (laughs) absorbed the spirit. Like its inspiration, the movie is one darn thing after another. Yeah, that's correct. And the takeaway I have from this that I'm taking from Letterboxd, because I only took one from Letterboxd. Okay. It's from October 21st, 2020. So it's a nice COVID thought from this person. And it's, how bad do you think this character smell? (laughs) Oh, man, it must be awful. It's got to be pretty terrible, except for George Clooney's head. I have to imagine, like, forehead up. I don't know, though. Dapper Dan. There's a lot of comments made about the smell of his (laughs) Dapper Dan. That's very fair. And if you can smell the Dapper Dan over the three of them, it's got to be pretty potent. Can't argue that, I suppose. (laughs) There you go. That's our brother. Where art thou? And I guess that means it's time for me to ask you, Dave. You got to beer me a movie for next week. I sure do. My last pick was E.T. It was my establishing pick. It cast a wide net. Thank you, everybody, for listening to that. It was a bunch. That was fantastic. Uh, But we're also looking at this platform as a way to talk about movies that we haven't seen at the same time. And there's a movie in particular that everyone said is one of their favorites of the year that I still haven't gotten around to watching. I feel like you're about to pick what I was about to pick last week. Well, that depends because was what you were going to pick last week a 2022 film called Everything Everywhere All at Once? A hundred percent it was. Good, because next week we are talking about <laughs> Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh it's the movie I wanted to see the most this year, Same. and I just haven't had a chance to do it. And now I'm forcing myself to have that chance, and I cannot wait. Oh, I'm so glad that I picked Jack and Jill now. No one's ever said that in the history of the world, you fucking monster. Uh, Because I still get to watch this. This is great. Fair enough. But you made us watch Jack and Jill again, you fucking monster. Yeah, well, I have no defense for that. I'm going to be honest. I got nothing. I can't wait. I've been wanting to watch since it came out and finally get the chance. That's super exciting. I can't wait, too. Uh, So until then, thank you for listening. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe. Join us on Patreon this month for... The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, our first Beer Me a Record, featuring Dave Novak. We sort of talked about the record. 
A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. We had a lot of fun. We so. did. We did. It's always fun hanging out with Dave. Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> it's a good thing that this isn't like broadcast on the internet. Right. Everyone, shh, keep it down. He'll never know. He'll have no clue. He's an idiot. <laughs> I think you made up for it. There you go. Perfect. Email us your questions and comments at bearmeamoviepod at gmail.com. Uh, we do have an email this week from Cubicle Monkey. Hey, Cubicle Monkey! And he says, Hey there, stupid question. Are we getting new merch? The Nigerian princes stopped taking my calls, so I need a new investment opportunity. I figured all these caped podcasters items are going to make me a rich on Antiques Roadshow in 2077. <laughs> Uh, new merch is in the works. New merch is in the works. Uh, get back to us in the new year. There will definitely be something new to, to share with you guys. Then. Absolutely. Uh, he follows it up with, here's something for your goop segment. Oh, sweet Jesus. I'm going to have to carry goop segments now? Back uh, into this? Not necessarily. I was, this I was might totally be... going to. <laughs> I was absolutely going to. Well, they haven't luck. really updated anything with anything good lately. Good luck following this one up. Okay. Goop is offering a $286,000 resort package where you will get to stay at an exclusive lodge located at, quote, the farm at Cape Kidnappers. Holy yes, shit. you read that right. Here's a redacted webpage the Illuminati don't get me. He sends a screenshot from the listing for this, this resort getaway, and days four through seven are at the farm at Cape Kidnappers. Where you can enjoy scenic flight from the Kari Cliffs to <laughs> Auckland Airport and all sorts of fun stuff with your Goop buddies. I um, miss this on Goop. I haven't checked in a couple weeks. <laughs> he says, uh, I'm pretty sure this is the plot for Taken 4. What did you think was going to happen? It's a work. <laughs> it's going to be the most horny Taken that there's ever been. <laughs> Liam Neeson's getting Taken 4, granted. That's right. Anyway, cheers to the new format. I'm looking forward to the next episode. Thank you, Cubicle Monkey. We love you, Cubicle Monkey. If you have anything you want to share with us, some, some goops you found or, or questions about merch or questions about the movies we're talking about, you can email them also to bearmeamoviepod at gmail.com or you can follow us on our social media at bearmeamovie on all of the things except for Twitter, which honestly has got to be gone by now. I don't know why we're, we're totally dating ourselves. <laughs> We're recording a few of these things a bit in advance just because it is the holiday. Holiday travel happens around, and, uh, yeah, with like Thanksgiving and obviously December is going to be crazy. Um, but it, there's no way Twitter is a thing still. There's no right, way, right? But so we should probably get on Mastodon or something. Mastodon would be great. We should really lock up that at Beer Me a Movie oh, on should. Mastodon. Um, in the meantime, if Twitter is by some means somehow still around, you can follow us there at Beer Me a Movie Pod. Brian, you got anything else? That is all I have. Fantastic. We're going to see you guys next week for everything, everywhere, all at once. We'll see you then. Everything, everywhere, all at once. That makes the princess even harder to find. We will see you next week.